Just ahead, North Carolina's top health official updates us on the latest COVID vaccination efforts. State lawmakers kick off a new session with old tensions potentially remaining. Plus, the new president formally addresses racial inequity coming up on Black Issues Forum. Hello and thank you for joining us on Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. As we close out the month of January, North Carolina's COVID-19 metrics continue to climb. Health officials are also dealing with the challenge of vaccination. But NC Central University is among the schools stepping in to help with that process. David Hurst reports. When Pfizer announced their COVID-19 vaccine had to be stored at ultra-cold temperatures, some health departments across the state didn't know how they'd store it. And we heard from several of them that we don't have the storage capacity that the Pfizer vaccine requires. UNC System University stepped up and found funding to get more than 60 ultra-cold freezers to distribute across the state. The state's six historically minority-serving institutions will receive additional mobile freezer units to serve rural areas and underserved populations. That includes NC Central, who will receive seven freezers and distribute them to sites in Durham, Halifax, Granville, and Vance counties, where ultra-cold storage is not available. We have obtained uh, one freezer, which, um, and we are getting a couple more in this week, and we'll be providing them to public health departments, uh, including the Lumbee tribe. Dr. Deepak Kumar, director of the Chambers Research Institute at NC Central, says these freezers will help overcome a logistical challenge that many communities are facing, and it will help them safely store the COVID-19 vaccine. If you're not able to vaccinate people, then it's going to be a big problem. We have high-risk individuals, and we know how COVID-19 is affecting disproportionately to underserved minorities. The freezers are also expected to support hospitals and pharmacies. In Durham, I'm David Hurst reporting. And of course, storage is only a piece of the puzzle that is vaccinating millions of people. And right now we're joined by someone who knows the challenges all too well, North Carolina's secretary of DHHS, Dr. Mandy Cohen. So happy to have you with us. And thank you once again for taking the time. Great to be with you, Deborah. One of the recent strategies has been to develop mass vaccination sites to try to get more vaccinations into the arms of North Carolinians faster. But some health providers have been frustrated because they say that this is cut into their supply. What's been the uh, impact of the mass vaccination program? Well, I think that our vaccine providers have done a tremendous job. As you know, we got off to a little bit of a slow start, but as we're sitting here today, um, this past week, we had allocated and delivered every single first dose vaccine that came to North Carolina. That's incredible. So there were no vaccines sitting on the shelf, and that's a testament to the really hard work of all the vaccine providers. And it is going to take a range of strategies. There's no one single strategy for getting this many vaccines out so quickly that's gonna get us to our goal. So we wanna have some of those more high throughput places where folks can come, but we know we also have to get out into every single community across North Carolina. And that's the balance that we're trying to seek. So, so we have to get speed and we have to get equity. Absolutely. And how are we doing on supply and demand? I will say we do not have enough vaccines here in North Carolina. 
nowhere in the country does, right? We are very, very, very limited on supply. And that is the takeaway message. Now, we did have some that was a backlog a few weeks ago. That is no longer the case. Now we are using every single dose the minute we get it here into North Carolina. And the reality is, is there just aren't enough doses to go around for everyone who wants it. As you know, Deborah, we're vaccinating those who are over 65 and over and all our healthcare workers. But we know the demand is so much greater than the supply of vaccine right now. So everyone's going to just have to be patient. We'll get to you. I promise. Everyone's going to have a, a spot to get their shot. It, but it's going to take some weeks and months for us to get there. What are you all doing to adjust and, and address that issue? It's very significant concern to me. And the way we are moving forward in giving out vaccines is very much trying to bake in equity. So first, we are giving counties more vaccine if they have a higher proportion of those who are African-American, Hispanic, Latinx, Native American. So we want to give you more vaccines. That's the start. Then we also want to support vaccine events that we know are reaching out specifically to our historically mar marginalized populations. We want to see partnerships with the faith community, with community-based organizations that know how to reach the community, because we know this is about trust, right? Trust and access. And so we need to see that from our partners. And we at the state want to support partners who are working in a trusted way with their community. So they get more vaccine if they have more of, uh, of the um, historically marginalized population they're serving, more vaccine if they are using the, uh, events to target those com communities and really get into those um, communities. Um, and then there's a lot of just best practices that we are sharing with folks about setting aside appointments, using off hours, going on the weekend, using church locations. There's a lot of different ways. Um, we also uh, just put out about two and a half million dollars in transportation benefits because we know we have to not just put the sites in the right place, but then folks still are going to need transportation to and from. So we're trying a lot of different strategies here to, to get folks um, access to vaccine. Well, we know President Biden has set a goal of vaccinating or getting vaccinations into the arms of 1.5 million people a day. What do you think about that goal and how is North Carolina tracking for you and your goals for COVID-19? Well, our vaccine providers, as I said before, have been doing a tremendous job. So now we are getting out all of those first doses that come to us. We're getting them right, right out. Um, so as of the beginning of our vaccine week, if you were, we had 99% of our first doses were out in arms. That is terrific. So we're able to keep pace. The real issue now is how much vaccine do we get to our state? And we want to be at the front of the line. North Carolina wants to be at the front of the line telling the federal government we can handle more vaccines. We have the capacity. We're, we, we're ready and raring to go. Um, and we heard that from the Biden administration. They actually gave us a bump up this week in our allocation. Not a lot, 15% more, which really translates into about 20,000 more vaccines. I'll take it, though. We'll take it here in North Carolina. And the more we can get for, for our state, the better. Well, every bit counts. And Dr. Cohen, thank you for the work that you're doing. And thank you for being with us. Well, thanks, everyone. And remember, we're still in the middle of this pandemic, lots of virus around. So do your three W's, wear a mask all the time, wait physically distant and wash your hands. Thank you and stay well. 
Washington, D.C. has gotten a lot of attention in recent months, but work is now underway in our own capital as the General Assembly returns to work. House Speaker Tim Moore posted this video of Republican lawmakers returning to the legislative building Wednesday. They'll have to find common ground with Democratic Governor Roy Cooper on big issues like COVID-19, health care, the state budget, and redistricting. And today we're joined by two of our state legislators, Senators Don Davis and Natalie Murdoch. Hello to both of you. Thanks for joining us. Hello to Hello. you. So, yeah, we're talking about COVID-19 and we know that there is more uh, relief dollars on the way. Lots of areas of need. Senator Murdoch, can you share with us what the greatest area of need is in your district? Yes, our greatest needs um, in District 20 here in Durham, proud to represent Durham County, um, are with our small businesses, working family support, and our public schools. Small businesses with less than 100 employees or excluded from previous federal relief programs are minority-owned businesses in particular are really struggling. 22% of small businesses in the U.S. have closed since the pandemic began, 41% of those businesses were Black-owned, and over 30% of those businesses were Latino-owned. North Carolina families are struggling. 14% of adults reported that their households were having difficulty having enough food to eat. 18% of renters were behind on their rent, and 35% of adults were struggling with just basic, usual household expenses. With so many businesses and families struggling to make ends meet, we have to provide them and provide more support to our public schools. And Senator Davis, what are you seeing in your district? Um, absolutely, and I uh, agree with Senator Murdoch. Um, bread and butter issues are important, but I'm gonna go a step further and, and share about very life in terms of health, um, what we're continuing to see, not only um, in my district and across Eastern North Carolina and the state, um, African-Americans in particular are still um, experiencing higher rates of death as a result of COVID-19. And right now, um, as we are working um, to deal with um, vaccine distribution, um, our roughly population across the state is about 22% or so. And that distribution number is about 11% uh, as of uh, today. Um, so I'm greatly concerned um, because not only uh, are these issues important to us today, uh, they were important to us before COVID. There are three major crises that I'll briefly speak towards. We have an Eastern North Carolina health crisis, high uninsured, high um, non-insured, uh, underinsured and non-insured uh, rates are very high in the East. Um, not only that, um, but we tend to have seen disparities, health disparities from birth to death, all the way, you know, dealing with life expectancy, it tends to be much shorter um, here in the East. So There's where another would you like to see, excuse me, where would you like to see the dollars targeted? We, ha we have to continue to see these dollars right now. Um, COVID-19 is real. Um, matter of fact, there's different strands that now are surfacing. We have to see the dollars um, tied towards educating the community, um, towards uh, you, you know the nature of this situation, why 
uh, and how that um, uh, vaccination um, can impact them and, and help us make decisions, good decisions, um, so that we're not um, reluctant to um, get the vaccination. Um, we need to continue the testing. We need to continue to um, in, in, help residents know how they can protect themselves and to take this seriously in, in terms of the three W's and so forth. Um, we have to continue when we talk about vaccination um, and we're moving towards mass vaccinations. Um, we need to um, take it to the people, um, even in these rural communities, the, the nooks and crannies, uh, uh, smaller places across the state. So there's just a lot of effort uh, that I believe we need to continue to take to literally save lives within the African-American community. So big public, public education effort, plus getting those shots distributed to various communities. Let's move to talking about a big issue that caused gridlock in the, in the last legislative session and is likely to cause it again, Medicaid expansion. Where do you stand and, and what is your effort going to be to try to um, move the needle on Medicaid expansion, Senator Murdoch? Yes, thank you so much for that. Um, and as you know, Durham is considered the city of medicine. Uh, we're proud to be a statewide leader when it comes to healthcare issues. And no one can deny that the coverage gap in North Carolina has reached a critical point. We have close to over 300,000 working adults um, that have lost their employer-sponsored health insurance during this pandemic. I myself, um, as a small business owner, um, actually went without insurance sometimes. So, so when I, I speak on Medicaid expansion and lack of health insurance, I know what that feels like to choose to make your payroll instead of paying your health insurance out of pocket. At one point, my premium was over $500. And Medicaid expansion is the strongest tool that we have to address this issue. Um, but the reality is Republicans simply do not agree. Um, there are other um, options that we can explore. Governor Cooper has um, led with this by starting a bipartisan panel um, multi-industry panel um, at the top of this year. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing more about the recommendations that came um, out of those conversations. I do think Medicaid expansion is the best way to do it, um, but it, it definitely seems that our colleagues did not agree. I'd like to move to getting your opinion on a recent report by the CDC. Senator Davis said that these public schools are not the big spreaders of COVID that we thought that they were. Is it time to get kids back into schools or did this report change your mind in any direction? Well, I, I think what's important to me is making sure that there are options for families that are made available. Um, for some, uh, they are fine and their students are doing fine virtually. Um, you know, right now districts many districts, not all across the state, are offering um, tracts. Um, and I've been into the schools. Um, it seems like the, that's working for the most part uh, for the state. Um, I just think right now, um, as we understand that um, there are varying degrees of comfort, um, and, and this is real, especially within the African-American community in terms of having reluctance of sending their kids back to school right now. Um, and, and I just believe at the end of the day, um, you know, parents should um, have a key role in making um, that decision and that 
options should be made available for them. Um, now, that's not to say already, uh, there's a, an enormous learning gap that's been created. Um, keep in mind within our community, there was that gap before COVID. So I am concerned about the gap widening, but at the end of the day, even as um, a child may not um, um, be the major spreader, um, that child comes home and some families may still have concerns. So it is very important that we take all of these measures into consideration. Senator Murdoch, Senator Davis, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks. Another batch of executive orders from President Joe Biden looks to address racial inequity, one of them dealing with fair housing policy. Marsha Fudge, Biden's pick for housing secretary, spoke on the purpose of those policies during her confirmation hearing Thursday. Opening the door for families, especially families of color, who have been systematically kept out, of the, kept out in the cold across generations to buy homes and punch their ticket to the middle class. One of the directives takes action on those housing laws, while others address the DOJ's use of private prisons, support for tribal governments, and racism toward Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. We want to bring our panelists into the discussion now. Mary C. Curtis, a columnist for Roll Call and host of the Equal Time podcast, Adul Ali, chairman of North Carolina Black Conservative Voices, and Morrisville Town uh, Councilman Steve Rao. So glad to have you guys with us again. <coughs> Pleasure to be here. I want to pick up on uh, the Marsha Fudge confirmation hearing. And one of the questions that was asked of her at the hearings was, is it ever okay to treat people differently based on their race? Can we achieve home ownership equity with policies that are not based on race? Let me open up with you, Steve. Um, absolutely, uh, Deborah. I mean, I think that it's so important that uh, home ownership is based on are not based on race. And the fact of the matter is that uh, the new secretary is right on point. I mean, only 46% uh, of black Americans today own homes, and they've been discriminated against, denied mortgages, denied loans, uh, de you know, the process of redlining where uh, mortgages and loans are denied uh, on, you know, based on race and in low-income areas of this country. And this has been going on for years and years and years. So I think we have to, we have to tackle the problem and this is the step, first step in the right direction uh, to acknowledge that we cannot base home ownership on race. Uh, everybody, every American in the land of opportunity should have the ability to purchase and own their own home. Now, talking about the policies to address, first we have the executive order out there, and Adul, uh, we have the executive order, but policies stemming from that executive order Congress is going to have to enact, do those policies need to specifically reference race or be race-based? I don't think so. And I think from what we saw with the last subprime mortgage debacle that crippled our country's economy, solely putting people in houses and giving them mortgages based on the color of their skin is a horrible idea. And, you know, again, briefly, we just saw the results of the last time we attempted that and quite frankly, very few people who received those subprime mortgages were able to, to stay in their homes. It's something less than 10%. So I agree with the, uh, with the councilman there. We should not be deciding who gets a home based on race. It should be based on your ability to comfortably pay for that mortgage. And uh, we should be providing, if anything, opportunities for people to buy mortgages that they can afford. So I, I agree with the councilman on that. 
and Mary, you, this is an issue that's close to your heart. You followed it. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, yes, I think we have to look and see that so many of the past policies that hurt African-Americans were based on race. Until the Fair Housing Act of 1968, you could legally discriminate. Obviously, I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, in a neighborhood where I would not have been able to buy that home. And so the remedies do have to reference race. Even with the mortgages uh, that the previous guests uh, mentioned, um, many times we saw that African-Americans who qualified for better types of mortgages were steered to these risky ones basically because of race. And we saw the last administration, the Trump administration, pull back on the enforcement of a lot of provisions of the Fair Housing Act. Uh, and remember, Trump had talked about in his campaign he had to protect the suburb, suburban housewives from hordes of low-income people invading their neighborhoods where this is pulling back on those and saying, listen, uh, we have to look at past policies that discriminated so we can, of course, eliminate mortgage discrimination and housing discrimination and make affordable housing more uh, open to black people. I'd like to move to another executive order that specifically referenced uh, racism in Asian Americans and uh, Pacific Islanders. Really wondering, does it pave a way for uh, for easing up racism, and, and what does it really address, that particular executive order? What was it, the real purpose, do you think, Steve? Well, I mean, first of all, I think that uh, as an Asian American myself, and I've been speaking with many Chinese Americans across North Carolina and the Triangle region, uh, you know, calling the, the, the coronavirus, COVID-19, the China virus, specifically profiling and targeting uh, Asian Americans, that this pandemic was, a, was their fault. I think has been um, very embarrassing to the Asian community. And I think that this is the executive order is addressing that specific fact that we should not be targeting or treating any uh, American differently because of the race or their color of their skin. I, I think we, you know, this is the step in the right direction. I mean, whether uh, having now President uh, Trump out of the Oval Office, he doesn't have the microphone anymore, I think that it'll make it easier uh, for Asian Americans to get through it. But this is a global pandemic. And in this specific situation, the president never referred to it as the coronavirus. He always referred to this as the China virus. We've got just a few seconds left, and I want to get both you, uh, Mary, and Adul in here. Uh, Adul, first, your overall uh, impressions of these executive orders, and is this uh, paving a path for, you know, really making some changes in terms of equity, or is it just executive orders that could be overturned in the future? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both, but I don't think you can rule by executive order. I think at some point we're going to have to have Congress involved, nor do I think you could executive order people's thinking. I think the more open we become as a country and have candid conversations amongst the racial groups, the better off we'll be. But I don't see that executive orders will change people's minds in and of themselves. Mary, last thoughts? Yeah, I think they're a start. Um, and you have Susan Rice ahead of this this uh, organization. Also, you see, after that insurrection at the Capitol, where there's so much of white supremacy, uh, uh, some of those the folks who were there with Confederate flags and such, this is so needed. And it is a start. And you see that he has also brought back the bias and diversity, anti-bias and diversity training in federal governments. So as your previous guest said, we need to have those conversations. But first, we need to face the truth. 
Let's move to something that's kind of current and in our cultural news. A previously announced transformation of the $20 bill is now moving ahead. The White House says it wants to speed up the process of putting Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill, moving Andrew Jackson to the other side of the bill. But not everyone is happy about the move. A Time Magazine columnist called the move a sign of disrespect. Adul, what do you think? Is it disrespectful? So look. No, nah, I don't think it's disrespectful at all. And I, I, quite frankly, I think it would be pretty cool to see Harriet Tubman on a $20 bill. But I want to ensure that this is just not window dressing. What we need to be doing is ensuring we have policies that'll get our people more of those Tubman. So that's great. That's good. And that's fine and well. But we need some policy to back it up so I can get some more, some more Tubmans there. <laughs> I like that, some Tubmans. Mary? <laughs> Yeah, well, I agree. I think that, you know, you saw COVID. Anytime there's a crisis, black folks are hit disproportionately, which is why some of those uh, executive orders targeting black businesses are great. Uh, and also, you know, it is. it would be good to see her. I know some people are saying, well, she was against black people as currency. It's disrespectful to put her on currency. But this was a woman who was a, a union spy, a suffragette, a civil rights worker, and a lot, not enough people know about, about her and all of the things she did. So, sure. And she replaces Andrew Jackson, who, <laughs> let's face it, owned slaves and was in charge of the Trail of Tears for Native Americans. So I think that would be a justice. <laughs> I hear you, Mary. And Steve, I... Uh... Love to hear your thoughts on it as well. Well, I, I think Harriet, well, Harriet Tubman <clears throat> is an American hero. And I think that we need to acknowledge heroes in our country. Uh, what she did as a spy and freeing um, slaves is incredible. And that story needs to be told to our children and our grandchildren. And so I think, you know, for those that say that it's disrespectful, I completely disagree. I think it's the right thing to do. And in terms of history, President Andrew Jackson did serve in the presidency, but as I read more history, I'm just shocked and appalled of uh, he beat slaves, he disenfranchised uh, 50 million Native Americans from their ancestral lands. Um, this was a man that uh, held the White House, but it has to be called out, and, and historians need to bring that out to our children, uh, that no president of the United States, uh, regardless of what time in history, can do that to American citizens and treat them so inhumanely. So. I think take him off the bill as soon as possible and um, put Harriet Tubman on there. I'm excited. Always some thoughtful insights from all of you. Steve Rao, Mary C. Curtis, Adul Ali, thank you so much for being with us. We also appreciate our senators, Natalie Murdoch and Don Davis and Dr. Mandy Cohen for taking the time to join us. If you're on Twitter or Instagram, you can reach us using the hashtag NCBlackIssues. And you can find all of our videos on pbsnc.org slash blackissuesforum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel for Black Issues Forum. Thank you for watching. Quality public television is made possible through the financial contributions of viewers like you, who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.